Welcome to Women in Venture Capital. I'm Roshvina, a student at Harvard Business School with prior experience in finance and more recently venture capital in Africa. And I'm Anvita, Harvard Business School class of 22. I've actively worked in VC and tech startup space. Our mission at Women in Venture Capital is simple: increase the representation of women in the VC industry through awareness and engagement. So join us as we engage with women establishing their presence in VC. Our guest today is Kristen Mackford and I'm so so delighted to have her on. She's one of my lecturers here at HBS and she's just amazing. Uh like I said she's a senior lecturer in the finance unit at the Harvard Business School teaching creating value through corporate restructuring and is the faculty chair for field based learning and co-curricular programs in the MBA program. She received the Robert F Greenfield Green Hill Award, the HBS Student Association Faculty Teaching Award, the Charles M Williams Award for Teaching Excellence, and the Apgar Award for Innovation in Teaching. At the age of 32, Kristen became the first female managing director in the firm's history at Bain, and she helped start Bain Capital Credit. And prior to her retirement from the company, she was responsible for the oversight of the high yield investments and a senior member of Bain Capital Credit's management team and investment committee. Uh, Bain Capital Credit is one of the leading corporate and distressed debt managers managing over 40 billion in offices around the world. Kristen began her career at Walt Disney Company and we were really excited to talk about that aspect of her life as well where she worked in corporate strategic planning and consumer products. She graduated from Harvard Business School as a Baker scholar and holds an AB with honors from Harvard College. So Harvard through and through. We are so happy to have you on the show like Anita said Kristen, welcome. Thank you. I'm just thrilled to be here and I just think what you guys are doing with this podcast is super important. So I'm flattered to be here and excited to be part of the mission. Awesome. So like I said, um you did start your career at Walt Disney. So I thought we could jump into this conversation by talking a little bit about your um career in strategic planning and business development and then move on to um what really motivated you to join Bain Capital. Yes. Um I graduated from college and you know many like many people recruited on campus, had a bunch of jobs on Wall Street, but was hired to join the corporate strategy group at Disney. Um my parents, I think my father in particular told me I was ruining my life by turning down a Goldman Sachs offer to go to Disney, but I really wanted the chance to explore um a couple of different things. And what was nice about Disney is it gave me a chance to explore. This group did some M&A stuff. They did some consulting type things, they're kind of internal strategists as well as to get a glimpse into operations. Um I also was just so fortunate in my life that my first boss was an amazing woman um named Meg Whitman. So she had just joined Disney from Bain and Company. um and of course then went on to become the CEO of eBay and the CEO of HP and hopefully soon will become the US ambassador to Kenya so that was just a great um great great fortune in my life to have early on an amazing role model of female leadership um i went back to business school i went back to disney cuz i thought like many kind of consultants i wanted to be an operator and about a year into my role as an operator in the consumer products group um i was unhappy and i stepped back and did this exercise where i tried to write down the traits of my ideal job which by the way i think is something that i would recommend to everyone do 
And what was on the list was things like, I really missed Excel as like nerdy as that sounded. I loved working with super smart people. I, I wanted a job that required me to be good at a variety of things. So, you know, finance and strategic thinking and working with management teams. Um, I wanted something that was on the buy side. So I knew I didn't want to do client service. And I remember taking this list and showing it to a bunch of people saying, what, what jobs fit this list? And one that came out was private equity. Now, at the time, this was in the 90s. Um, at the time, you know, the people who were doing private equity, you know, this was just on the heels of the old barbarians at the gate. So this was corporate raiders and, you know, Erwin Jacobs and Carl Icahn and Saul Steinberg and all these, frankly, older white men who were doing this. And I kind of looked and said, like, I don't see myself <laughs> in this at all. Um, but you know, I'd had the good fortune that when I was at business school, I had a finance professor who had written me this note at the end of the semester, basically telling me that he thought I was really good at finance, which by the way, is something I now tell many of my peers to do. And I think business school just gave me the confidence that this was actually something I would be pretty good at. Um, so I decided to go and try to get a job in private equity. Um, Meg Whitman, my first boss, was a huge asset. So she called over to her friends at Bain Capital, got me an interview, and the rest is history. So my husband and I picked up and moved back across the country, back to Boston, um, to start what would become a 20-year career at Bain Capital. That is amazing. And what I took away, which is one of the very good lessons that you mentioned, that write down what you want in your job going forward. Yes. And those need not be things that, you know, compensation and where I want to stay could be things that are and you should probably yes. put that but even things like what quality of work what's the culture that you're looking at what you know specific aspects of skill sets you want to put down next excel right. i like excel i i can relate to what you say but that was beautiful yeah. and 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 just to add to that Amanda, i think um i think it's very natural at least in my experience talking to hbs mba students is they tend to start with what the job is that they might like so they'll sort of say do i want to be an entrepreneur do i want to do private equity do i want to do venture capital and what I really want to encourage people to do is to start with the traits, like, well, what, what are the types of environments in which you thrive? What is the work that you lose yourself in where you get flow and, you know, four hours have passed and, you know, you've just been engaged the entire time. What are the moments at work where you just feel like you're at your very best? You know, all of those are, I think, clues for all of us on the traits, like the components of the job. And once you can identify those components, it's a lot easier then to figure out the right role for you. But I would always say, start with the, start with the building blocks. Don't jump too quickly to the job. Because if someone had said to me, you know, you should go do private equity investing, I would have been like, absolutely not, no way. But because I knew that the component traits were a good fit for me, um, it ended up being a better fit overall. I'm totally with you. And I'm where you were at that point in time in decision-making, like knowing what to choose next. I'm with you that this exercise can be super helpful. The other thing I loved about what you shared is that after doing all that exercise, you reached out to people to get a sense of what should I do from here? What job really fits the bill? Yeah. I think again, surrounding yourself with that, you know, Meg Whitman's of, you know, your life uh, to have those mentors, to be able to yes. trust them, to, to look up to their decisions. So that's amazing also. Um, and then your career with Bain Capital has been something 
nothing short of amazing because you were there for close to two decades. You were one of the yeah. first women managing directors who climbed yeah. up the ladder and uh, in such a large institute, uh, you created such a beautiful name for yourself. Would love to touch upon the aspect of climbing up the ladder there. But before we move on there, would, would love to know about, you know, your overall journey at Bain Cap, maybe a few defining moments that you felt in the two decade long journey, really, you know, you take back and uh, look back as, you know, that really changed your life perspectives. Um, and then you retired, you know, in 2013. So would love to hear, you know, how that happened as well. And, and yeah, a little bit about that. Great. So I joined Bain and Company, excuse me, Bain Capital. I joined Bain Capital when we were 25 people renting space from Bain and Company. Um, it was not anything like the Bain Capital that it is today. And you know, one of the great joys was to be along and a part of that journey of building um, what has just grown into an incredible company. So I started doing private equity. Um, I did private equity for about the first five years. And then I had the opportunity to help go build our credit business. And this was a new business for Bain Capital. This was back um, when private equity firms were just starting to branch out beyond private equity into other asset classes. And I took on what was supposed to be a six month assignment to try to bring a lot of the ways we thought about investing in private equity over to the credit side. Needless to say, six months became 15 years. Um, and I found it really, really satisfying to be able to be a bit entrepreneurial and help build a business within Bank Capital and help to shape the investment processes, the culture, the, the way we operated was really just enormously, enormously satisfying. Through that experience, I also learned a lot though about some of the differences between public markets investing and private markets investing, because I've had the chance to do both. Um, and I think that's always an important thing as people are thinking about careers in investing, just to get clear with yourself on what you like to do. Um, you sort of mentioned that I retired, I retired in air quotes, we're gonna do air quotes. Um, I, I took a, I started a second chapter, we'll call it, by moving to HBS 20 years later. And for me, I think the biggest reason that I did that was, I often say somewhere around my 3000th bond deal, I was like, I cannot look at another one of these. That there's an element of investing that is wash, rinse, repeat. Yes, every market is different. Yes, every company is different, but the process remains pretty similar. And I think it's so important for people who are thinking about what they wanna do in investing to think about what they would be willing to do a thousand times or 2000 times. You know, any of this is fascinating. The first 10 or 15 or 20 times you do it, and part of what I've seen for people that creates longevity in the business is finding something that you're willing to do or excited about doing a thousand times. Um, and for me, I think people's kind of timers go up at different times. You know, for me, it was right around 3000 bond deals. There's many of my peers who are still in there doing private equity because they're, um, for them, it's still exciting and fresh. That's really nice to hear. And I, I can relate to that as well. I mean, obviously I haven't had a two decade long career, but yeah. I can say within a few um, years of banking, I was doing the same, you know, presentation yeah. for clients. And those are the moments where you're really thinking, all right, I think I'm ready for something new, but 
again, I went through the exercise that you mentioned before, which was really assessing what I look um, forward to in a job before really jumping into, into the next thing. Happened to be venture capital for now. We'll see how that changes um, over time. Awesome. But, but so think, okay, um, this, is, this mm -hmm. is an important point because part of when I'm, when I'm kind of coaching young people about what they want to do in investing, one of the questions you want to ask yourself in addition to, do I like public markets or private markets, but what kind of companies do I like? Do I get excited about early stage companies or do I, and, and, or do I get excited about late stage companies? And that goes back to those foundational questions of how much do you like analysis? When a company's earlier stage, there's simply less to analyze. And I've had students I've talked to who are like, I just love being able to rip something apart and analyze it. Well, guess what? Early stage venture isn't for you. Other people who say like, I really love building companies and, and helping companies scale from that smaller place. I get a lot of joy out of that. Then that's a great fit. But it all comes back to this foundational exercise we talked about of figuring out what gets you excited and then finding the piece of the investment world that's the best fit for you. Absolutely. And I'm sure our listeners will really um, appreciate all the, all the wisdom that's coming for this. Um, so really great to learn about your experience at Bain and just wanted to touch a little bit on, you know, you were, like Anvita said, the first female MD at, at the company. And I just wanted to ask you about your journey, um, not only being one of the few, you know, um, women in finance in the 90s, but also being at the top of the corporate ladder. Because yeah. I think one or two recurring themes, themes we've had throughout this podcast is women are usually worried about, you know, joining the industry, but then not being able to climb the corporate ladder or being stuck at certain levels. And a lot of it has to do with a lack of mentorship, which we talked about a little bit earlier. So just curious to know how your experience was and have what you observed in terms of the role of gender in, in the industry. Yeah, I have lots of thoughts on this. Um, so when I joined Bain Capital, within six months, I was the most senior woman on the deal staff. And what I found was Bain Capital was there, my colleagues were very interested in having me succeed. They, they were enormously supportive, but they didn't know exactly what to do. And I think one thing now sitting here today as I've spent more time trying to understand what we know actually from gender research is that I think men are often very well-intentioned, but in a desire to not wanna screw up, their instinct is to pull back a bit. Um, I felt that I remember physically a few times where you know we'd be looking at a model on a computer and the guy would kind of like shuffle a few <laughs> feet away, this like sort of physical, um, this physical stepping back. And what is very challenging about that is in an industry where apprenticeship is so critical to have women succeed or have anyone who's diverse succeed, they have to be getting the same levels of mentorship and training as others. So what I realized early on was um, I needed to figure out how to get that, I'm gonna call it care and feeding. Um, there's a lot of research that shows that women are less likely to get feedback quality of feedback, quantity of feedback, specificity of feedback. I will tell you in my first 
seven plus years, I don't think I ever had an actual performance review at Bing Capital. Um, I'd get a like, you're doing awesome. You got the highest bonus, which was great. But again, I wasn't getting, I think some of those types of um, important building blocks. So I had to figure out how to get it. You know, how to, I often talk about like there's capital F feedback and little f feedback. And there was some interesting research that came out a couple of years ago about how often if you ask for advice as opposed to asking for feedback, you get something that's more actionable. And so I learned to try to get the feedback I needed in small ways by making it specific and easy for the feedback giver, as opposed to walking into someone's office and saying, hi, can we have feedback? Which again, would just, I think, strike fear into any manager's heart and just make them nervous that again, that was an opportunity for them to sort of screw this up. Um, I found it's interesting as I've talked to other women of my era and even women now who um, are kind of in the middle of a private equity organization, like kind of say VPs, principals and above. You know, one thing that's often true is we all have some story from our childhood or young adulthood that kind of armed us with the ability to be in a largely male environment and still thrive. So in my case, in college, I was the coxswain of the men's crew team at Harvard. Um, and, you know, it's funny, when I got to private equity, I very quickly realized that this was okay because I'd, I'd seen this before. I'd sat in crew boats with eight guys who were sweaty and snotty and grumpy and bleeding and in pain. And, and I learned how to be a part of that team and how to try to lead that team. And all of a sudden I get to bank capital. And I'm like, oh, I've seen this before. And I, and in talking to other women, many of us have stories about experiences with sports as a kid or um, being uh, in a family with lots of brothers or or being raised in a way that kind of armed them with the ability to still thrive in those types of environments. That said, I would say, particularly in the first few years, it was pretty lonely. And again, that was not in any way um, a knock on the firm because Big Capital, like everyone was lovely and wonderful and truly, truly wanted me to succeed. But I think that I didn't fully understand, and I think they didn't fully understand um, how important it is to help give a little extra welcoming, I think, to people who feel like they don't fit. So you asked actually about mentorship. Um, you know, I saw a talk from Condoleezza Rice, who, as many of you will know, is the uh, one of the former secretaries of state, a black woman. And she said about mentorship, you know, if I waited for a mentor to look like me, you know, I'd still be waiting. And I think this is an important message that yes, it's, it's natural for us all to want to have mentors who look like us. But if you're waiting for mentors who look like you, you just miss out on tons of um, wonderful mentor opportunities. And I'm sure you've heard this, but, but lots of people, we think about mentorship as your board of directors, that I have mentors who are wonderful coaches in my life when it comes to career decisions. I have mentors that help me with specific things on the job of how to navigate a particular situation. 
Um, I, I frankly consider, frankly, many of my best female friends, great mentors, because they help me figure out how to manage um, a busy job in the context of a life. One thing we didn't mention is I married, my husband was very, um, had a big job and I had three daughters. So um, mentorship comes in all forms. And I think the way to think about mentorship is that it's people who are helpful to you in some piece. And that what you're trying to do is put together a portfolio of mentors that are there um, regardless of what the problem might be. We can tell you're an investor. You just use the words portfolio for mentors. I love it. Um, and what's really interesting is when you were talking about, you know, having mentors in different aspects of your life, one uh, question that we love asking our guests is, you know, have you had role models in, in your life, you know, personally, professionally? And a lot of the, the answers are there. People have had role models in different aspects, you know, in, in school, in high school, in college, in, at home, at work. So it definitely is something that I don't think there's one person that's going to guide you for the rest of your life. I think there are different aspects of your life that you will get some kind of wisdom from um, different people, different sets of people, basically. So that was really interesting to hear. Yes. You know, when it comes to role models, we'll go back to what we talked about earlier. The fact that I had Meg Whitman as my first boss, and I tell her this whenever I have the chance to see her, was beyond important for me. Because very early on, I got to see a woman um, lead and be senior. And there were a lots of things in the way she handled herself in interpersonal interactions or in meetings that I could copy and take with me to Bank Capital. I think what's tricky for role models is, is particularly for women in investing. And I think particularly sometimes with networking, this lack of role models can be tricky. And I'll give you an example here. You know, very often we were finding that women who were kind of coming up behind um, would often, struggle's the wrong word, but but it, it, they, they lacked role models for how to build relationships, particularly with male peers, particularly they didn't play golf. And so, you know, the way that their male colleagues would interact with other men at investment banks or at companies was not really gonna be effective for them. And trying to figure out how to find their own style and how to build relationships is something that I think is one of those places where women need other women. Um, it's one of the skills that I think is helpful and transferable across industries. Um, but it's something that I think women in particular need a little bit of help on is how to engage in that stuff. And that's why going back to this topic of their mentors or peers, you know, I believe so much that the sisterhood is critical. Um, we haven't yet talked about HBS Women Investing, but when I got to HBS, one of the first things I did is I, I bought dinner for all the women who are graduating. Um, and I basically said to them, like, you need each other. You need friends out there for this exact type of thing to help you figure out strategies to be able to handle some of the situations that only women face or figure out how to build relationships in ways that are authentic to you. Um, and from their feedback, we ended up starting a club on campus that has now gotten quite large. But I, 
nothing makes me happier than seeing the sisterhood that is out there and the power of that sisterhood in helping women succeed. Because yes, like mentors come in all sizes and forms. I do think it's important for women to have some female role models just to help figure out some of these key pieces on how to find a style and an approach that works for you. For sure. And uh, being an integral part of the Women Investing Club from my former year and my current year as well, I can't agree more. The sisterhood and the, the community of people we are interacting with the women, um, I can see long lasting relations with them. And, you know, in 10 years time, when we're hopefully all in the same position as, you know, now trying to move up the ladder further, uh, I can see sharing notes. I can see catching up over drinks with them to just share out and, and you know, just just share that this is what I'm going through, which I'll probably not be able to do as comfortably as freely with yeah. other male counterparts and like you said nothing to say that they they come with wrong intentions like we've only had some amazing supportive male counterparts as well but like you said there are things which you want you know your uh you know women counterparts and sisters as you rightly put to discuss with and, and get opinions on so yeah. that's so, been a wonderful l- let me add one more thing here on this you know i think i certainly found in my career that the times where I would just have dinner with other women who had busy jobs were so fueling, right? It, I would always come home to my husband and be like, like, I just, it just felt so wonderful to feel understood and seen and have friends who were kind of living a version of the same life that I was. I think it's very easy when we all get busy to decide that those types of things are social time. And I just wanna remind any woman who's listening to this, I call it fuel for a reason, because you need it and it's important. And so prioritizing time with female friends is not, that's not off the clock. Like that's actually the fuel you need and the bits of wisdom you need to be able to succeed in your job. So I wanna give everyone listening to this permission to put that pretty high on the priority list. Um, it matters, it's helpful, you should do it. No, I, I'm sorry, I was just gonna say, Anvita and I, one of the first things we did when we started at HPS was actually to go on a dinner with um, some female students from MIT, from the investing community or, yeah. or women interested in investing. And that fuel, that energy you talked about is something I definitely felt just, you know, having dinner, talking and, and realizing very similar minded and, and have the same ambitions and inspirations and really getting inspired by each other. Yeah, for sure. And I, I wanted to step back on that point, because like you said, it's important to find that sisterhood and continue cultivating that for people who are looking to start today and looking to find that sisterhood for themselves like how would you guide them to even explore that what firm is right for them like you found Meg and that was amazing she became like you know the mentor for you but how should people find their Meg how should people find their Bain Capital which is a team of amazing 24 men who had just the first woman join Kristen but are yeah. very very friendly uh, and open for her uh, open you know and, and actually collaborative that she should climb up the ladder just from her talent and you know not probably put gender as you know on top of whatever that comes to mind or whatever but how would you guide you know early investment managers now trying to take those decisions so i would say two things one um at least in the u.s part of the hardest thing of investing is getting in and so 
sometimes look, if you can find the perfect firm that is filled with wonderful people at the exact stage of investing you want in your first entry into investing, kudos to you. But, but part of what I think is important is just getting in, like get that first experience. And now you have resume, you have some relationships, you have and understand a better understanding of you, what you liked and what you didn't like, what parts of the process, which bits did you try to, you know, uh, procrastinate as much as you could, you know, and then you can optimize. As I think about the women I've kind of coached and mentored who have graduated HBS, to a person, the single most important thing, and this will be no surprise, is the team they're working on. That and remember that even within firms, firms have cultures, but they're really comprised of these microcultures. So I find that women who are on a team where the senior person on the team is deeply invested in their success are happy. And the women who are at incredible brand name places, but happen to be working for a partner or two who they don't feel are as invested in their success um, are deeply unhappy. So yes, we've talked before about the importance over the long-term of getting what stage do you like, right? Do you like public versus private? But finding that group of people who you wanna um, ultimately be your partner. I mean, remember so much of this journey is you're gonna work for eight, 10, 12, however many years to become a partner. As I always say, if you're gonna climb the mountain, you better like the view from the top. And that comes down to ultimately picking who the right partners are for you but not putting the pressure on yourself that you've got to do that in your first job. That's, that's some really great advice. And um, as someone who also just started her career in investing, um, I love the team I work for and it makes such a difference when I'm going in and sitting and sourcing from like a thousand companies. It makes your life much easier when you're working with a team as inspired and as smart and as driven as you. So I, I absolutely echo that. Um, so just on this, go ahead. That. You know, you are so fortunate yeah. to have had that. Um, you know, I have many women who are in my office their first year of business school and they'll say to me, I'm never doing investing again. Like that experience was terrible. And I think with the passage of time, they're able to separate the job of investing and sometimes the people that they worked with um, and come back in and find that role, but with a team they're super excited about and to a person they're happy. I think I learned the importance of, uh, you know, really spending hours with a team that really drives you and you're comfortable around in banking very early on. So <laughs> I helped translate that to investing a little bit. Yes. Yeah, a very similar point I was making that between choosing the right people to work with versus the right role, uh, I mean, it, it'll, it may just take you so much time to just finding the right company, which where the role that you aspire to is where it should be. But I would any day prefer people over, over oh the role God, as a yeah. company. Yes, for sure. Yes, I completely agree. Uh, also remember that, you know, most people, like I was unusual in that I took my first role in investing and stayed there for 20 years. Um, again, if I look at the women who've graduated HBS even over the last eight years since I've been there, many, 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 many of them have switched firms. So the good news is for women, there's a lot of demand for diverse talent. That is, by the way, a big change from seven years ago. Um, but that just means that for women, you've got a little flexibility to not 
not feel the pressure. You have to get it right, you know, on the first go and Mm -hmm. to make sure that in any role, you're really doing a good job of being a good student of yourself and figuring out what bits of this are a good fit for me, what bits aren't, and then pivoting to something else. Absolutely. And just, just staying on the topic of, you know, like advice for women trying to find the right team or um, going into investing for the first time. There are a lot of um, women that we have conversations with that are really worried about, you know, getting stuck at VP roles, um, not being able to get to the next step. What, what kind of advice would you have for, for those women? I can't think of a woman who felt that way at the VP level and has not been able to successfully transition to a better firm. So that's, yeah, you're not stuck. It may take you a year or 18 months. It may take a little bit of networking and the like, but here's the good news. Like the world needs, finance needs more senior women. And so women, you have, you're not stuck. You have more flexibility than you give yourself credit. And and by the way, let me turn it back on myself. That's one thing I I didn't fully understand coming up the ladder at Bank Capital. Not that I would have left, but but it's really easy when you're busy and like, and by the way, when you have kids, um, to just be head down and try to just kind of make it through. And one thing, if I was to replay the movie, I wish I had done more is done a better job of picking my head up at a couple of interviews and saying, okay, is this where I want to be? You know, is this the right place for me? And to recognize that I'm not stuck ever. <laughs> I mean, so. I love yeah. how you put it. it. It's really beautiful. And just a, on a tactical note on how should that be managed? Like at the time of entering the organization, would you recommend women to explicitly consider these and have conversations with teams that look, I'm looking for a partner track. I am, uh, this is, you know, what I'm aspiring to. Do you feel that that comes across aggressive or, you know, you should go with it, spend a couple of years and then see where it goes? Between oh, yes. Okay. So I think it's important to be on air. So one thing we know, let's go back to research. We know there's a lot of research that you know, if there's a job description and there's 10 traits that the job description is looking for, you know, a woman who, I'm going to get these numbers wrong, um, will apply if she has eight of the 10 and a man will apply if they have four of the 10. And women in interviews will have a tendency to be a little bit more honest about their weaknesses and their insecurities. What I always like to remind women when they're interviewing is that men are listening with male ears. And so while you may try and be trying to be self-deprecating or transparent, what men often hear is insecurity and a lack of confidence. I can't tell you how many times women have come to me and have been have told me that in an interview, the men asked, we're not so sure you want to do this. And I think there is just a negative bias, whether it's, you know, whether it's implicit or not. I think there is this unconscious bias that that means that women on the margin have to prove that they want to do this. So I think it is important, Ahmed, in, in response to your question, to be 
really clear that you really love investing and that you're excited to learn and that you want to be a partner someday and that your goal is to do this for decades. Because I think that women, society kind of wants to presume that we're not every bit as interested. I'll tell you guys a story. When I first got to HBS and I started women investing, I would go visit a bunch of private equity firms. And what they would say to me is, oh, women don't want to do this. We don't get any resumes. And what I would say to them is, is it's not because of the women that you're not getting resumes. It's because of you, because women who are talented look at you and believe that they can't, it's not going to be a level playing field at your firm. But okay, if you're concerned about this, you know, there's a famous story of my old um, the founder of Bank Capital, Mitt Romney, who in government had these binders full of women. I'm like, I'm going to put together binders full of women. So I put together a resume book from HBS. It had a hundred resumes in it. And I literally sent it out to every firm I could find. And I could say, here you go. Here's a hundred resumes of talented women. Stop telling me that women don't want to do this. Now explain to me why you're not hiring them. Now, the good news is the world has changed a lot since then. And now firms are super hungry to hire women, but I still think this bias exists that on the margin, you got to lean in a little bit more and convince people that women want to do this. That's very helpful. And this reminds me of one of the cases we did in our first year with Heidi Rosen. Uh, There was a study that came out that if there was a Howard Rosen versus a Heidi Rosen, um, people actually said that if the guy was being aggressive, we're fine with it. But if the woman becomes a little aggressive, do we really want to work with her? And that becomes sensitive, right? Like you said, we want to be aggressive. We want to be who we want to be, who we are expected to be. But then those unconscious biases that are not just with us, but with the people we're working with, managing that gets to a a sensitive, you know, just just the balance. Yeah. So what you're talking about, Amrita, is something called the competence likability trade-off. So what that is, as you referenced, is where the expectation for women is that we're supposed to be warm and nurturing and communal and that men are supposed to be you know, confident, assertive and the like. And when we think about the traits of leaders, we think about them at least in European, Western US culture. So it's not true everywhere around the world as that those leadership traits are more male. The challenge comes for women that when you act in assertive, dominant, aggressive ways, it's not gender normative. And so what we often see is this challenge that women are often either likable, seen as likable or competent, right? You're either competent, but not liked or likable, but not competent. And where this manifests itself is when women act in an assertive way. So women are much more likely to face blowback when they advocate for themselves, as an example. So we often see in negotiations that women are fantastic at negotiating for others, gender normative, for their company, gender normative, but when they advocate for themselves, when they ask for a promotion, when they ask for a raise, they face blowback very differently from how men do. And this makes it a little bit tricky when women are forced to advocate. Um, By the way, one side note for every woman who's listening to this, We also know this translates to um, advocating on behalf of gender. So what we know is, is that women tend to face a little bit of blowback when they advocate for gender. Men get like pixie dust and brownie points. In most firms these days, 
firms, no surprise, are trying to ask the women to fix gender at their firms. And one message I would have to everyone who's listening, it makes sense as to why they're doing that, but women are not responsible, junior women are not responsible for fixing diversity at their firms. Senior women are responsible for fixing diversity at their firms, but do not feel that this is your responsibility. Everyone who's listening, your job is to get senior and then you can go and fix your firm. That's that's really interesting. And some really strong points there. Um, and I wanted to end this conversation by talking about the role of women, not only within investment firms, but also as LPs and, and founders, you know, how do we get women in and involved at basically every stage of, of that process? I think one, uh, when people do ask me about, you know, why I'm doing the podcast, why do, do I think, you know, there is this huge gap between men versus women as decision makers, I do you think it has something to do with not enough women LPs? You know, at the end of the day, all these investment firms are trying to make money for their LPs. So if having more female LPs can make a difference. So what do you think of that, you know, statement and also your general observation of women as, as LPs? So let me answer your question with a couple pieces. Um, one, I think I give the most credit, the dramatic change we've seen in the desire for firms to become more diverse, I give 90% of the credit to LPs. Like that, I talked before about the change we've seen over the last seven years, where seven years ago, firms were like, women don't want to do this. And now, you know, they're all over women and you know, straight white males uh, have a harder time getting in. And that I think is a lot due to pressure from LPs and public shareholders. And anytime I'm talking to LPs, by the way, male or female, and the men have actually been pretty good about this too. I think I've got a lot of it's being driven though by their constituents. So you think about, you know, pension holders, teachers funds, et cetera. Um, but men and women in the LP community have been fantastic stewards on this and leaders and have made a lot of this change happen. That said, if you ask me the question of like, why, why is it that we're still struggling? So I think there's a few pieces to that. First, we're making a lot of progress on recruiting. And that's not surprising because it's actually the easiest piece. It's a lot easier to hire a woman than to have a woman thrive. I think there's two challenges that go on, just by way more than two, but I'll highlight two. The first is that women actually, I describe this as like the invisible backpack as they, you know, the invisible weighted backpack as they climb the mountain. Women just have a harder journey. And that's for a whole bunch of reasons. That is they get less feedback, they get less mentorship, they get less of the intrinsic knowledge of how something gets done in an organization they're more likely to be assigned office housework, which is all of the non-promotable tasks. Um, their mentorship often doesn't translate as much into sponsorship. Um, so all those things make it harder. Like I, I sort of describe it as like a woman and a man who are both climbing the same mountain. You load one with an invisible backpack full of rocks and then you're surprised why it's like harder to climb the mountain, but like no one talks about it and acknowledges it. So that's sort of the first piece. And I think hopefully 
as time goes on and we continue to educate particularly men because they're a huge part of this conversation men more on what's going on we can help kind of take some of the rocks out of the backpack that's number one the second which we haven't talked about yet is motherhood the reality is in the u.s we send very very different messages to moms than we do to dads you know a mother you know a woman is expected again gender normative to uh, spend time with her children that's what being a good mom is and a dad needs to provide so again, there's research that shows that on the margin, men actually get a little bit of a pay bump sometimes when they're fathers, because they're now seen as having to provide for a family. And one of the big beliefs amongst the research community about what happens between men and women is not that men and women care in any different way about their families. In fact, there's a whole study that HBS has done amongst you know, tens of thousands of our alumni over the years that shows that men and women care equally. Like it's always, for everyone, it's number one on the list, my family. But yet the messages we send men and women about what it means to be a parent massively changes the trajectory. So let me give you an example. You know, I had the great fortune to be able to work. I used to go home on Friday afternoons at noon and be there for my kids' play dates. And that, by the way, is a memory I just cherished that I was able to be there. Something I wanted to do, I definitely took a massive pay cut for doing it. I would do it again a hundred times over. But I also recognized that my male colleagues could never have done that. Just wouldn't have been, like it was okay, of course okay for me to do it because I'm a woman and that's what a mom does. But for a guy to do it, that's not okay. And so if I could wave a magic wand and say, let me start fixing one thing at firms, it would be to force every man to take a paternity leave. Because like, again, there's been research that came out in the, I think it was the New York Times recently um, about how men, when they take paternity leave and just bond with their kids early and we start to establish a vocabulary that, that it's about parenting, not about women versus men, that is a huge, huge barrier here. Um, I often like to say that the challenges I faced as a woman, I put in two buckets. One were the female things, you know, being the only woman in the room, the competence, likability, trade up, all those things we talked about. But the second was the realities of being in a dual career household. The reality was of my partners in the US, my straight male partners, 100% of them had spouses who stayed home. And all of my female partners or homosexual partners had spouses that had full-time careers outside the home. There's a whole reality here about dual career that hopefully is gonna start changing this conversation, but up until now, I think it's a big, big barrier for women to succeed because when you're getting those messages, it just, it just makes it hard to thrive. I, I hear that completely. And actually, um, paternity leave has been in the news recently because of the, uh, Twitter CEO just making that statement. So it's, it's interesting that it's still, it still draws a, a range of reactions. So there's definitely a lot of work to be done still, even if, you know, it's becoming more, um, out there. Um, this was one of my favorite conversations so far, okay. and I'm sure Anbita will say the same. Um, I definitely learned a lot from this chat with you today. So I want to take this minute to just thank you for joining us on the podcast. And I'm sure our listeners will really appreciate all of your insights. My pleasure. And thanks to both of you for doing this because these conversations are just so important. Mm-hmm.